Welcome to Cal St. G Academy, the educational podcast of the Parish of Calvary St. George's. These podcasts are intended to inform and deepen your faith so that you can share your faith thoughtfully with the world around you. For more information about the parish, go to calvarystgeorges.org. And now, break out your moleskin prayer journal, and let's get started. The Creed is a four-week series of Cal St. G Academy. Each week, we'll take an informative and edifying look at the Apostles' Creed. These talks are recorded live every Sunday at Calvary Church. All right, so today is article number two of the Creed. We're going to focus in on God the Son. Two weeks ago, we focused in on God the Father, the Almighty, the Maker of Heaven and Earth. And before that, I gave kind of an intro to the class as a whole, and I ended it with an invitation to trust. But again, I'm going to say the same thing I said just a second ago. Uh, Do you remember that baptismal confession? I kind of enacted it. I acted it out. Um, This person who had no idea what was going to happen to him is asked, do you renounce Satan and all of his works? And then this jug of oil is poured over his head when he leaps out. I I do. I, I, I renounce him. And then later on, he's rushed to the river uh, and is asked, do you believe in God the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth? And then when he gets out, yes, or I do, he's ducked underwater as if he is being drowned. Well, that early baptismal service, that early form of the Apostles' Creed, it dates from the late 2nd, early 3rd century, so we're talking 100s, 200s A.D., uh, so in other words, it's, it's really old. It's, it's ancient. Uh, well, before this confession, the one that I mentioned two weeks ago, there was an even earlier creed. And that creed dates from the early first century, the early to mid-first century. And that creed is only three words in English. And those three words are Jesus is Lord. I'm sure you've heard that before. It's even in our scriptures Because remember, the letters of Paul are the earliest. The Gospels actually come later. And we see this creed enacted in our scriptures itself. That's how early it is. So, this early confession, Jesus is Lord, this just happens to be the spiritual heartbeat of even of this creed that we're looking at today. That we've been looking at this whole class. So, Everything that we've done in the Apostles' Creed, including last week, including the week before that, especially today, uh, it radiates like the spokes of a wheel from that hub, that hub that Jesus is Lord. And essentially that hub, that early creed, means that you and I are personally attached to Jesus in baptism. That we, when we say the creed, We are pledging allegiance to him. So I think this is helpful to know, especially when we get lost in theology sometimes, uh, into the deep recesses of the medieval period, how many angels are on the top of a pin. Um, And that's a little bit of a uh, making fun of the medieval era, but at times it can feel like that. Um, But I think it's helpful to, to realize that at the center of the faith, at the center of this creed, it's not an idea It's not a theory. It's not even a vision for life. At the center of the creed is the name of a person. Jesus 
the Christ. And our faith, this creed, and the earlier Jesus is Lord, centers on a personal attachment to him. This isn't just something we abstractly think about. This is something we get involved with. So, uh, a, a much later Christian confession, one that comes out of the period of the Reformation, um, the Heidelberg Catechism of 1563 uh, gives voice to this personal center of the faith when it begins with the question and answer, what is your only comfort in life and death? And the answer is that I am not my own, but belong in body and soul in life and death to my Savior, Jesus Christ. So you see that the in that creed, and I, I see Doug here loves it because he comes from the Reformed tradition, and this is one of those Reformed confessions of faith. And in this confession, we're making clear that this is not, again, some abstract idea. It's very personal. I am not my own, but belong in body and soul, in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. So, attachment to Jesus is personal. That's made clear in the creed. But that's not to say that the that attachment to Jesus is private. Uh, it's not a private matter. In fact, Paul tells the Philippians in his letter to them, uh, maybe you saw the UFC fight yesterday, and John Jones had a, ta- uh, a tattoo on his body. It's a ver- that famous verse from Philippians, I can do all things through Christ, yada, yada. Well, in that same letter... Paul says that one day all worldly powers, all authorities will speak the name of Jesus and confess Jesus Christ is Lord. That early creed that I mentioned at the beginning. And so to confess that Jesus is Lord means kind of what I was saying earlier, that we ultimately pledge allegiance not to a flag, not to a country, not to any king or president, but to this king. And his kingdom. That's our ultimate allegiance. Whether you're on the right or the left, our ultimate allegiance is to this king and his kingdom. So to confess Jesus as Lord also means that we acknowledge Jesus as the one who shares the identity of the God of the Old Testament. Um, what do I mean by that? The God of the Old Testament, right, is revealed as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, at the burning bush, um, he's revealed as I am who I am. And, and we see this uh, in the scriptures, and sometimes you hear it vocalized as, as Yahweh. This is the God of Israel. In the New Testament, it is shown, it is revealed that Jesus is the one who bears that name. Jesus is One in being with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jesus is, scandalously enough, Yahweh. And if you read your Bibles, you'll know clearly that you you won't even see Yahweh in the Bible. And that's it's for good reason, right? Jews don't vocalize that name. Only the high priest did. One day a year in the most holy of holy place. But when you read your scriptures and you see that Lord all capitalized, it's not lowercase, or it's not capital L, lowercase O-R-D, it's all uppercase. When you see that, that is referring to the name, to the name of Yahweh. And in the New Testament, 
it reveals that Jesus is Lord. So he's not just like the lords who we deal with, like in the ancient world, they dealt with Caesar, you dealt with your king, on some level, like our president is something of a lord. Jesus is that kind of lord, but also Jesus is the ultimate lord, Yahweh himself. He is God. And that is what we're confessing in this first part of the creed, when we say he's God's only son, our Lord. So ultimately, this is to say that to confess that Jesus is Lord is to set him above every other loyalty. Um, And for us, that might mean to set him above money, power, sex. You fill in the blank. Uh, This is to make a universal claim. Universal claims are not very popular in our day and age, but it is to make a universal claim. If Jesus truly shares the identity of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, then he is the hidden truth of all creation. Everything that we read in the Pentateuch and in the prophets and the writings, whenever it talks about God, it's also talking about the Son, Jesus Christ, the Lord. So, again, keeping this in mind, the the personal aspect to this faith, this isn't some abstract idea only. This is personal, but it's also Universal. I can confess him as my Lord because I recognize that he is the Lord. So last year, uh, a famous British historian, his name's Tom Holland, he wrote a, glo- the, the, a history of the global effects of Christianity over the past 2,000 years. It's a, a pretty audacious book. It's like 700 pages. Uh, if you're in a Mockingbird at all, they said this is one of the best books of the year. Uh, and and his, the central thesis of his book is, and this is my paraphrase, but this is me trying to be faithful to the character of the book, that the message of the Lordship of Christ has not been a word of oppression. It has, in fact, been a word of comfort and hope for peoples of all cultures. So one example that, where, that he mentions is that the ancient confession of Jesus' lordship began to change the way Christians thought about slavery. Now, as I mentioned a couple weeks ago, Christianity took root in societies that were rigidly stratified and hierarchical. There were way more than even today. There were clearly marked distinctions between men and women, rich and poor, Jews and Gentiles. And, And of course, slave and free. But the Christian community did not accept, the early Christian community did not accept that people were defined by these social distinctions. You could see this, right? Remember, think back to week one. These people were baptized naked. They were baptized side by side. When you go into the waters of baptism naked, you can no longer tell the difference between those who are rich and those who are poor, those who are enslaved and those who are free. So we see this in the scriptures itself. It's not what we quite want it to be because we live in a world uh, where, where we think in terms of rights and we can look back in hindsight and say, that's crazy uh, that humans owned other humans. But we see in the first century, Paul Uh, In his letter to Philemon, he's urging a fellow believer 
to regard his runaway Christian slave no longer as a slave, but as a beloved brother. Fast forward to the 4th century, this is 300s AD. Gregory of Nyssa, in his sermon, he issues this scathing denunciation of the institution of slavery. Now, Gregory doesn't have access to the modern ideas of individual rights and liberties. He comes at it as he sees it. The problem with slavery is that it creates a false lordship. By making one person the master of another, human beings claim an authority that belongs only to God because there is one Lord. And he goes on to say, to write, this Lord does not enslave, but calls to freedom. Again, think back last time, right? When we think in the terms of almighty, that power, we're not thinking in terms of domination. We are thinking in terms of a maternal love that frees. A love that's not competing for control or power, but a a power so complete in and of itself that it frees you. It liberates you. So because Jesus is this universal Lord, not just private, but universal, Jesus being the Christ means that all worldly power is ultimately limited and provisional. Also, because he is Lord, this means that social distinctions are relativized and will ultimately be put aside entirely. All people owe their allegiance not to any other person, but to Christ. And before him, they, we recognize each other as sisters and brothers at the terms of the New Testament. Um, so you can see how uh, there is no longer Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female. This, this logic gives rise to this egalitarian ethic. Uh, and what Tom Holland is arguing is that it is the universal lordship of Christ that slowly gives birth to this ethic. Now, of course, Christians are fallen just like everyone else, and this ancient institution of slavery didn't vanish all at once. Uh, But again, as slave and free stood side by side and confessed that Jesus was Lord, you could see how it's not too far a stretch for Holland to say that the days of slavery were numbered with the advent of this, these ideas, of this person. Um, yeah, so in sum, this is me focusing on that first line, I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord. Uh, Jesus is my Lord. Jesus is your Lord. This is a personal thing. But he's only our Lord because he is the Lord. His lordship limits the authority of all other lords. This doesn't mean uh, Christians are necessarily anarchists, but it does put in perspective the provisional nature of these lords and how when, when what they're telling you to do competes with what Scripture, what Christ is telling us to do, we have a lord who's ultimate, uh, And finally, before this Lord, the good news of the Lordship of Christ is that these social distinctions that we're so used to are relativized 
and are ultimately going to be set aside. Uh, you see that, right? The early church is this really diverse thing. Uh, it doesn't really make sense. Um, and yet side by side are Jews and Gentiles, slave and free men and women. So we looked at that. I was actually supposed to do this, but I, I think it's okay because we're going to jump to this one. I'm going to focus on what it means by Christ being conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. So, a lot of you, you probably know them. You probably see it in Newsweek every time around Easter there's a new article. But there are a decent amount of Christians today who think that the idea of the virgin birth is a relic of bygone days when people were simpler and found it easier to believe in impossible things. We might think that we can handle most of the rest of the creed, but the virgin birth is something that stretches things a tad too far. Now, I think the trouble starts for us when we take this line of the creed independently of the rest of it. When we hear this, born of the Virgin Mary, we as moderns, we're like, what do you do with that? A virgin cannot give birth. This is a way where there is no way. Um, it, it, it's essentially kind of like uh, the metaphor I like is, it's like you found a bicycle chain when you've never seen a bicycle. Um, you have to, you, you, what do I, what sense do I make of this strange object? Uh, you might, yeah. So you have to see it in its proper context. And I think the same is true with this part of the creed where we say we believe in the virgin birth. If we take it in isolation, we might conclude that it's just a spectacular miracle or even a logical absurdity. It's a random miracle or it's logically impossible. Um, We're not trying to, yeah, I'm not going to go there. To understand the virgin birth, we need to see how it fits in the whole story of Scripture. Uh, And if you're familiar, especially with the Old Testament, there are a lot of stories where miraculous births play a starring role. You remember Israel's story, Israel itself. It begins with God's promise to Abraham and Sarah, right? Uh, This couple... They can't conceive. They're beyond the age of childbirth. Uh, And yet God tells them, you're going to be a great family. In fact, you're going to be the start of uh, the family through which my promise comes into this world. And do you remember, right, Sarah laughs at that promise. Uh, Abraham was probably doing the same thing, but he was just right in front of the messenger, whereas Sarah was behind the scene. Didn't think she was being heard. Uh, But later, when when she gave birth... Uh, in her old age, she names the child Isaac, right? Isaac is laughter, right? She's laughing at herself. I laughed at the promise. I've been given this joy beyond all joys. Isaac will be the child's name. Uh, she, can't, she can't believe that her body brought this into being. Um, but she has given birth to the promise because our God is the one who makes a way where there is no way. Where else do we see this? Well, we see God making a way out of no way, right? When the people of Israel are enslaved in Egypt, right? there, These people are enslaved. They have no power. There's no way they can get out of this unless God makes the way. And that is the message of the Exodus. Not, you know, try to inflict plagues on your enemies or, or 
do this revolution and it will happen. No, the, the subject of the sentence in the Exodus narrative is God who makes that way. Fast-forwarding in this story, when Israel has come to the promised land before the monarchy is established, God raises up judges to rule the people, to lead the people of Israel. The greatest of these judges, if you remember, is, is Sam, Samson. Uh, Samson, the one with the long hair, the mighty one who uh, sinned a lot. Um, but Samson's mother, same story as Sarah, is unable to conceive. But then she's visited by an angel and the angel tells her essentially the same thing. Your womb will open. You will have a son. And he will triumph over these people who enslave you, the Philistines. Uh, again, again, we see this time and time again. After the ages, or the age of the judges, uh, in the age of the prophets and the kings, we, it begins with Hannah, right? Hannah, another one, who's barren, who goes into the temple and just yearns for... A child, and think back to this time, right? You're not being able to have offspring means you're like unable to bring the promise into the world. This is a great sense of shame for these families, and yet Hannah, who is praying so that the promise might be fulfilled, she becomes again miraculously pregnant, um, and Samuel, the great prophet comes into the world, and he is the one who would anoint the kings and uh, anoints Saul and David. Well, we see this. This is, these are just a couple examples. Throughout the Old Testament, at the great turning points of history, God makes this way out of no way. And oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes it involves a miraculous birth, right? So the story of Israel on some level is a story of these miraculous births. So later on, when you know, we, we talked about the Exodus, we talked about people coming into the Promised Land, the judges and the prophets. Well, during the period of the exile, the period of the captivity, the darkest hour of the history of the people of Israel, where it seems like the promise has faded to a point where it's no more, where there truly is no way. The temple has been destroyed. The people of Israel have been taken away from their promised land and it is here at their darkest hour in the depths of their despair that the promise of God is heard through the prophet Isaiah. And what does he say about it? Well, he compares the coming deliverance of Israel to the joy of a miraculous pregnancy. And we'll see it right here. Hopefully you can see it, but if not, I'm going to read it. So Isaiah writes this. He says, Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Burst into song and shout. You have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate woman will be no more than the children of her that is married, says the Lord. Will be more, sorry. Enlarge the sight of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. For you will spread out to the right and to the left and your descendants will possess the nation's and will settle the desolate towns. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the prosperity of your children. So this is all to say that uh, right here, Isaiah is saying it is as if Israel in her exile has been a poor woman in a small tent with room for only one. But now it's time to make alterations on her home to prepare a space for this bursting family. The one 
who has never been in labor is about to give birth. The one who is barren, Israel itself. There's no way forward. Everything's been destroyed. A way will be made where there was none. So as we see throughout the, the, the story of Israel, we see the promise, God's promise, God making a way for the promise where there is none. Um, so it's not hard to see why pregnancy and childbirth played such an important role in the history of God's covenant with, with his people. God's overarching plan, as we just talked about with Jesus being Lord of all, is to bring blessing on all the nations through the descendants of Abraham, through this promise. And if the Hebrew women ever stopped giving birth to children, then the promise would have failed. The whole world, according to Scripture, would be lost. So pregnancy and childbirth are the means by which God's promise makes its way through the crooked course of history. Um, So against this backdrop, it should come as no surprise to find that Israel's Messiah, entering the world by the means of a miraculous pregnancy, that this might be the way. So in the Gospel of Luke, the first character we meet is another faithful Israelite, uh, woman by the name of Elizabeth, right? You remember Mary's, Mary's cousin. She can't conceive, but like Samson, Samson's mother, like Hannah, like Sarah, Elizabeth is visited by an angel who promises that she will bear a child. And then when Elizabeth meets Mary, we see something even wilder. An angel tells Mary that she too will miraculously conceive and that her child will be the ultimate fulfillment of all the promises of God to his people. This is where we see Mary respond uh, with trust, uh, the birth of the Magnificat, um, but also a way is made where there was none. Uh, Again, we see that with the first patriarch, with the first judge, with the first prophet, and then we see it's like even bigger and badder for God's own own entry into this world. Um, Again, Isaiah says that makes it from like individuals to Israel itself, and Jesus is the new Israel, the Israel who could follow God's law, the Israel who could make a way when the people of God couldn't, when you and I can't. So the confession that Jesus is born of a virgin, it's not just a bit of theological eccentricity. Um, It's not some random miracle story. It's a reminder that our faith has deep roots in Israel's story, and Israel's scripture. Um, The coming of the Savior, it's a new thing, but it's not just a new thing. It's the culmination of this whole great story of God's dealing with the people of God. So again, so finally, when we confess Jesus as born of the virgin, we see him silhouetted against the backdrop of God's promise to Abraham, the exodus from Egypt, the rule of the judges, the coming of the prophets, and the promised deliverance from exile. So... Again, 
we see that the story of Israel on one level, on one profound major level, is that we serve the Lord who makes a way out of no way. And the good news for you and me is you and I serve this same Lord. This is the living Lord who continues to make a way where there is no way. So when you're tempted to stop believing in prayer or feeling like, I don't know what to do with this, God already knows, blah, blah, blah. Be like Hannah. Pray. Our Lord is the one who makes the way where there is none. I don't always know why he doesn't do it all the time. Nevertheless, we trust in this living God, the Lord, born of the Virgin, who makes the way. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Cal St. G Academy. All of these podcasts are recorded at live events and lectures hosted by the Parish of Calvary St. George's in the city of New York. Want to hear more? Stop by the church sometime and attend one of these events live, or swing by one of our many services where we seek to rightly divide the word of truth week by week, with sermons that always point to where we end and God begins. Find out more about all of our events and offerings by visiting calvarystgeorges.org. And if these free podcasts have meant something to you, and you feel led to support our ministry, head on over to calvarystgeorges.org slash giving and make a donation today. Thanks again, and we hope to see you soon.